0: Welcome to the Woman by Definition podcast. This is the first in a series called Resisting Adolescence. With experts in their field, I explore some of the issues of modern day adolescence, how we can guide and lead tomorrow's adults, and how we deal with their distress. In this episode, I talk to Susan Evans, psychotherapist, nurse, ex-member of GIDS service at the Tavistock Clinic. As always, please subscribe and like this episode. There are other ways to show your support in the description. So good afternoon Susan Evans. Um, Susan Evans is a registered nurse, a mental health nurse, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a senior clinical lecturer and a senior fellow at the UEL which is a huge list of qualifications. Good afternoon
1: good afternoon kelly j and some of those actually are in the past so they're you know i'm not a registered nurse anymore because i've retired from the right okay i don't work at the tavistock anymore but that's kind of like my cv and that's my experience of working in in mental health work okay so
0: (laughs) i've invited you on really to talk about how a child goes from a normal healthy child uh, and then maybe at 16 is thinking about uh, fully transitioning or 18 thinking about fully transitioning what it looks like what the process is like from a healthcare point of view but also what it's like for the family and what their sort of points of accessing qualified medical advice is so really easy one to start with what is gender dysphoria
1: so, gender dysphoria is is the sort of medical uh, definition of it is when there is a, a mismatch, if you like, between the biological sex and the gender that someone believes or feels that they are. That's the easiest way to describe it. So, it's a discomfort, dysphoria. It's a sort of sense of being um, uh, mismatched. Does right. that is that? yeah yeah that's okay so that so
0: however on my ears when i hear things like gender um then i think well what are we really talking about talk me talk me into a typical if there is such a thing example of how someone may feel gender dysphoria what might they talk about that they feel
1: so when i worked at the uh, gender identity clinic um of years ago now 2004 2007 so quite a while ago but i don't think the children have changed a huge amount in the in the way they present what they would tell you perhaps a boy um, would say i'm disgusted by my penis i don't even like to look at it or they might say i'm terrifying of my voice changing i don't want to get a big adam's apple or to grow hair on my face um girls tended to hate their breasts felt very self-conscious about their breasts um, and would sometimes disguise them or bind them and and the other thing that they really struggled with very often was uh, menstruation they found that a really difficult time every month um, but then there would be other kind of ways in which you picked up a sense of um self-disappointment right through to self-hatred i mean they were sort of you know they were very distressed about who they were and who they were becoming Mm.
0: and so their distress would that be different to other types of distress so other other children may focus um and see a solution to their distress in other things so is it is it a typical sort of response if you know what I I'm probably not saying it properly. Um, would you see other children with the same sorts of distress that would focus that distress on something else as a resolution?
1: So absolutely. And the other thing is when you say... You know, is, uh, it, uh, the words, the semantics of this area are so difficult. And I don't think perhaps there are any right or, or wrong words, that there are sort of ways in which we try to convey something of what's going on. But I would say um, that a very, very similar presentation that I've worked with quite often is um, people with eating disorders. So an anorectic patient will be absolutely obsessed with their bodily state with how thin they are with what they're eating with what they're putting into their body how much they're exercising but their distress and their disturbance is all focused on the body but it's a very serious sort of mental illness it's in fact anorexia is got one of the worst prognoses you know for for death rates um, as a mental illness. And it's very, very difficult to treat because they're in a very fixed state of mind. And, you know, it would be unpopular to say it, and I think a lot of the trans advocates would really want to disagree with me, but my experiences of speaking to, both of speaking to the patients themselves, but also now to detransitioners, is that they very often describe um, an eating disorder that's around in their mind as well. But to answer your question a bit more accurately, I, you know, I think the mind can cause young people to be in very serious disturbed states, and then the presentation, how that is expressed by them, can vary hugely. Some of them will want to harm themselves. Some of them will go manic and sort of just cannot sit still. They they become really out of control. Others will become highly depressed and will lock themselves away. So it's, you know, in my opinion, I do think that the children largely who I have met in this area and who I've worked with uh, clinically do have a background of all sorts of emotional difficulties and disturbances, which I think then gets expressed through trans... Identity, if you like, yes. or this sort of gender dysphoria. So, so you know, it's it's kind of like a real, a very deep dislike of themselves and disappointment in themselves. Sorry, that's a very long answer.
0: No, no, it's great. It's great. Um, so, with the children when they present, is it common that there's something else that they present with? Is gender dysphoria ever just
1: the sole thing that's going on for them? Um, so again, this is a really good question because I think in the same way that you can meet someone who has a particular obsession about something, it can be very convincing that, that if only that was sorted out, the rest of their life would be good. So mm. for anorectic people, you know, if they're sort of maintaining a very thin body and not eating, that kind of feels to them as if they are better or in a better state of mind it's more settling for them but certainly as i as i say, from my experience of working with the children and this is why i advocate so strongly for assessment and, and and therapeutic treatment is because i know that as you get to know a child and as they get to trust you a bit and feel that you're someone who's trying to support them with their distress mm-hmm. um, and not argue with them about it but try and help them understand why they feel that way and why they feel so bad is that then you discover you know that maybe they've been bullied badly at school they have had uh, sexual abuse perhaps as a child some of them are autistic or they would have very black and white ways of thinking about things it's it's what you call in psychiatry sort of schizoid you're rather cut off from your emotional world perhaps right. um, and you see things in a particular way but I I think that even if someone appears to only have a trans um, identity issue, let's say gender dysphoria, they may convince people and and may very well appear that way that they say if I sort this out, I know I'll be happy. But again, I think what um, follow up studies are beginning to show is that, that that may be the case for a few, but actually largely. After a period of sort of euphoria or a sense of "phew, you know, now I now I can get on with my life," the discomfort or the mental health issues do start to re-emerge, and the self-hatred starts to emerge. And, right. Uh, yeah.
0: So I guess if you if a if a child is convinced that this one thing in their life, if it's if it can be altered, it will resolve all the other things that have sort of led to that pinpoint it stands to reason that both them and their parents would think that the journey through to transition is going to be the answer to all of their prayers and and it also stands to reason that it obviously won't be because from what i gather you don't get to gender dysphoria without there being some some other lead-ups
1: Yes, and again, I mean, it's hard because I don't want to sort of say that every child who suffers gender dysphoria, you know, has been abused or has mental health issues, you know, or but but I, I suppose in a way it's like the symptom or the expression of something that that needs understanding you know we all need help sometimes to come to terms with who we are yeah. and i think there's some way in which particularly now so many of these children i think they're not coping very well with the reality of who they are um yeah. and all sorts of reasons for that i think mm. but um but then it seems like a solution and then of course you can understand because of the way it's been conveyed and unfortunately because of the sort of political activism in the area it's as if it's the only answer now that you affirm it and you follow it through and uh in my clinical experience i think it couldn't be further from the truth and actually i think it's going to be very damaging if that's what we continue to do simply yeah. affirm.
0: It seems like uh, it would be quite irresponsible for instant affirmation
1: from a clinical and professional point of view. Mm. So, you see, I think affirmation was one of those ideas that maybe started off being a good thing, which is if a child, you know, thinks they're transgender, you know, one would always want to listen to the child, um, not to treat them unfairly, yeah. you know, to give them a good hearing and to, to support them in that. You see, I suppose, in a sense, affirmation that it's okay to be who you want to be. Yeah. You're not what you perceive as normal. You're sort of feeling a bit out of kilter with all your peer group, but that's okay. That's what I would think is a good affirmation. Yeah, What I think it's become is an unthinking, sort of almost like a sort of religious cult type of thing that has to be obeyed. As soon as a child expresses, um, you know, those words, I think I'm trans or I've got gender dysphoria. It's as if everyone has to immediately agree with the child. And it kind of brings me to what we're sort of trying to think about today, because obviously what's been um, in the news recently was uh, Liz Truss talking about this idea of, of, Um, Sort of treatments that are irreversible and of course one immediately kind of goes to thinking about medical aspects of that and the drugs and we can maybe talk a bit about that I'm not an expert though but I think you see as soon as you affirm with a child when they say I don't think I feel right as a girl or a boy I think as soon as you affirm that in the way it's now being used you've given the child the message that actually yes you know maybe there is something wrong with your body you know yeah. maybe there is something wrong with the way you feel um, instead of exploring with the child what that feeling of dysphoria or confusion might be about and that's where I think the affirmation model has gone so wrong really yeah um, I, I, and I think that Once you do that, you start the child, not only, you know, whether they go on to take hormone blockers and cross-sex hormones and have surgeries, which is a whole other area um, and a really worrying one that I'm involved in at the moment, but um, you are, in a sense, psychologically irreversibly changing something in their mind.
0: Because they trust you. So if they say, I feel like this, and you say, yes, you do, and then you change their... I, I watched a documentary only this morning. And I mean, one of the parents said that their child transitioned at three. So they were li- living as the opposite sex at three. And I just think for those kids, I, where's their escape? Because mummy and daddy have, have said, yes, you're right. You, th- we knew that there was something, which is often, mm. you know, we knew there was something about you
1: yeah and again it's it's that it's the sort of it's the concrete way i think in which affirmation has been sort of converted into this kind of it's the only way um that i would like to challenge because of course if if a boy wants to wear pink or have have a dolly and a pram, why shouldn't they you know it, i think so you can support a child you know if a boy wants to be painting pink flowers and you can kind of say "Well, it's okay but you wouldn't say but that makes you a girl Mm. Mm. and you wouldn't say but that makes you not a very good boy either (laughs) and I know that's a really simplistic way of saying but but for a three-year-old you see I think it's absolutely crucial and parents are so so influential yeah in a child's life if you tell a child something they'll start to believe it
0: um, Absolutely. My kids believed in Father Christmas for a really long time. Yeah. You know, a man sort of could go around the entire world and drop presents off in loads yeah. of kids' houses. You know, if, if we can convince them of that, then I'm pretty sure we can say, yes, you, you will go through puberty and come out the other side, the opposite sex. Mm. Um, so, talking of parents, then, what are parents hoping for when they take their children into clinics? And does it depend if those parents are parents of primary school children or teenagers? Is, is there a, are they different so, sorts of parents or is it as varied as varied can be?
1: That, yeah, varied. I, I think, you know, there are parents across the spectrum. There are parents whose hearts have been broken Their children being affirmed at school without their knowledge, or you know, certainly in the states, having healthy breasts remove at the age of thirteen or fourteen, or being commenced on hormones at the age of eight. I mean, I Mm. think those horror stories unfolding in uh, the states at the moment. But but again, you know, I I'm more working in the UK, and what I um, think is that parents can you know be really heartbroken by it there will be parents who want to try and support their child and feel really confused by it. They don't know whether they should call them by their new name whether they should allow them to wear opposite sex clothes um, you know because they're trying to do the best for their child Mm. they're trying to understand them and unfortunately then i think there are also um, and i think we once the research gets better in this area i think we'll start to see that there are parents who are sort of unconsciously homophobic or perhaps overtly homophobic in certain countries and and that homosexuality is just a no-go and so they would encourage a child to transgender Mm -hmm. and make them more acceptable in society but also i think there can be all sorts of subtleties i think there are a myriad of types of parents what i would say is that i think that this whole area which has exploded in the last sort of 10 years is so destructive to family life it's so divisive it causes terrible problems between parents and their children and then between parents and parents and between siblings trans children dominate sometimes in the families and other children get forgotten about i mean there are so many ways in which um it can affect families Mm. Um, you know it it it's a tragedy and it it's really hard i've been contacted by a lot of parents and they tell me their stories of what's happened to them and the way they've been treated by clinics or by health services and yeah it's it's not good care that we've got going on here at the moment
0: so what is there for parents then because most of the parents i encounter clearly are not the parents that are very excited about having uh, a trans child but most of the parents I've talked to either had somebody that had rapid onset gender dysphoria um, or have actually transitioned so these parents are bereft. Um, so a parent that, that's child is now saying either out of the blue or consistently saying I'm born in the wrong body or some other such um, propagandized expression. What, what would you advise them to do? Who should they see?
1: So that at the moment is the million dollar question. Um, What I try to do for the parents who've contacted me personally, or through the case that um, you know about that I've been involved in the judicial review, I try to put them in touch with colleagues who I know um, will be taking a kind of neutral line with their patients and just trying to understand their patients um and not to immediately go down the affirmative route but it's tricky because it's a litigious area i think there are colleagues who are already being accused of conversion yeah. therapy um which is an awful thing really because that's not what it's about it's about helping the child learn a bit more about who they really are um so so it's and and i it's i'm not an expert on to you know to to kind of give the advice in the sense to the parents i just try to put them in touch with people that i know or organizations that i know have a more measured and thoughtful approach to this organizations so, like transgender trend yeah.
0: so when did when did this new affirmation Model that now is everywhere um, and quite frightening. When did that really take a grip of um, clinicians and professionals working in, in the NHS?
1: So, I don't know if you know this about me, you probably do, but when I was working in the clinic back in 2004, 2005, I already had a sense that there was a political movement behind the clinical work. And it was the first time really that I'd encountered it in all my years in working in the NHS. It was the first time that I felt that medical treatments were progressing Further or more quickly than they should have been. And of course, I'd been used to working psychologically. That's my background. I I listen to patients and I get to know them and I try and understand what their symptoms and their illnesses are about. Um, And I was shocked to see that, you know, some of the children there were referred for medication after maybe four or five sessions with a therapist. Um, and so I took it up with the team itself and saying, surely we can't send a child as quickly as this. And back then it was 16. It wasn't even these yeah. 10 and 19 year olds. Um, but, even, but a 16 year old, I said, surely we should be spending you know, years working with them psychologically. Um, but what I realised was even back then that mermaids um, were a, a sort of support charity. Um, and when I first heard that they were there I thought that's fantastic you know because for parents of transgender confused children um, that's brilliant and then of course worked out what their um, aims and objectives were and so I did whistleblow back in 2005, I think, and and there was a small kind of internal inquiry and and to look at the clinical work that was going on, but then I just realised that 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 there was something much more powerful external to the clinic that was driving it, and back then, of course, they were beginning to talk about the idea that you could change a birth certificate. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember thinking this just doesn't feel right, and it feels very fast and surely there's something not quite right you know it's one thing to help a person live in another role and for them not to be treated cruelly or unkindly and for them to have you know equal access to you know healthcare and education and not be discriminated against absolutely for that but there just seemed to be something very perverse about the idea of actually sort of encouraging children to say well if you change your name and then you change your birth certificate you are then the opposite sex. It it just seemed um, not right.
0: Yeah. Do you think there is a marked difference then from what you've just said between how gender dysphoric children uh, presented, say 10, 15 years ago and the journey now, and are parents very different um, now? Is is there a big difference since the powerful sort of pro-trans and kids lobby groups have stepped in?
1: I, I would say yes. I would say yes. And I think parents would agree. And I think in fact, teachers, social workers, you know, medics would agree. So I, I would say that that it, it the affirmation model has become the model. Right. And... Obviously, we know the numbers have completely exploded. Mm. So it's now a lot more common. So I think back then it was very unusual for a child. I mean, we used to have about 90 to 100 per year from the whole UK referred to our clinic. So I also had a bit more of the luxury um, of working longer term because we weren't under a lot of pressure. But I think that several things have gone on. But obviously, as we know, the activism by the trans lobbies has been huge and and the influence on medical treatments has been Mm -hmm. huge and so um we now have this worrying situation where the sort of clinical go-to route is affirmation and referral and despite what they say i absolutely know from clinicians who've left more recently that some children are literally only given a few hours you know, two or three appointments, perhaps, before they're referred for medication. And um, some do receive a a, a longer period of time with with some of the clinicians. Mm. I understand some of them are still trying to work in that way. But, um, you know, whether or not it's three appointments or their protocol is six, I mean, I just think you cannot even begin to get to know a child and what's going on with a child or a young person um during that time and so i think the change has occurred as well because of the media because of all the online stuff because of the pro lobby groups and just to answer the question about the sort of the the medical treatment as well from the point of view of the parents i think we kind of all kind of grew up thinking doctor knows best and so the problem is if you go to a clinic and it's kind of presented that this is the accepted route of treatment now. And we put children on blockers and that puts them into a nice period of pause. Um, and then if they want to go ahead, they can have cross-sex hormones. And, uh, you know, and then we'll go refer them on to the adult clinic. Um, and if you believe the mermaids, uh, and I Call it propaganda because I think they've completely misused the statistics in the research studies. Parents feel terrified that their children will commit suicide, and I feel so so sorry for parents and for the clinicians working in that way because they are having this sort of threat of suicide um, dangled over their heads. And so, of course, as a parent, you think, Oh, we've got to follow the best practice that this clinic suggests Mm. and that's happening the world over unfortunately at the moment
0: so if we accept that the suicide stats are part of the propaganda were they not part of the story for a lot of the patients say 20 years ago was suicide not something that teenagers talked about
1: so i don't remember a single suicide when i worked there i only worked at the clinic i think for three years or so um But also Polly Carmichael, the current director, um, admits herself that suicides are very low. The statistics actually are sadly for trans people later in life, um, you know, they're much more at risk. Statistically, the children can be supported and helped and that threat of suicide should not, be used to terrify parents um, or to persist in in, in this, um, you know, the sort of rapidity with which children get put on blockers. And I'm not saying there's not distress. You know, someone sort of once said to me, oh, you don't know what it's like. Well, I do. I've sat in clinical sessions yeah. with young kids who are extremely distressed. But But sometimes kids are distressed, you know, and the director of the JIDS clinic at the Tavistock herself says that, you know, suicide is not a huge issue amongst their client group. Now, of course, young people do commit suicide and, and uh, you know, it's not that one's not taking it seriously, but suicide is much more common in uh, transgender people than the general population. Um, so unfortunately a lot of them do suicide a much higher proportion of transgender people suicide after they've had yeah. their medical and surgical treatments um, but but it's it's a real shame that, that 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 kind of mermaid's message and the Stonewall message about you must treat the child or they'll commit suicide yeah. I think really unhelpful one and um I think parents have been left feeling like well, I've got to do what the doctors yeah. say is best and and of course they believe that message they're state-sponsored at the moment mm. so you know it's it's a really unhelpful one and it terrifies people and it is yes, I think
0: of, of course and and I guess if you're if you're told part of this thing that you have which is gender dysphoria or I suspect many children that are uh, presenting as trans don't have any such thing as gender dysphoria. But if you're told that part of that story is suicide, (laughs) suicide ideation, and in addition, you're told that 93% of children who are affirmed feel much happier, which is another sort of statistic they use. It's like, not only will they take their own lives if you don't do it. But actually by affirming, then you really, you're really you really doing the right thing by your child. So these these parents are in a terribly difficult situation. So moving on to puberty blockers there, the, the myth is that they are 100% reversible. And I have heard Polly Carmichael herself on a CBBC programme say that they just do a pause and if you stop taking them, you just go back to normal. Um, where is this nonsense come from? Because it's not true, um, and the precocious puberty comparison can isn't useful to anyone because precocious puberty you take before the, what the age of six, maybe seven, mm-hmm. uh, for a very short spell, um, and then puberty blockers you're obviously taking from maybe eleven to mm-hmm. sixteen so where has it come from that this idea that they are reversible and is it true
1: so first thing to say is i'm not a medical expert but i have spoken to medical experts i've spoken to endocrinologists um, and researchers and what they say is that the drugs can be stopped after a short period of time And puberty can go back into um, occurring. So if for a year or something, you take these drugs and then you stop, um, things kind of do return. However, that's not the story with these drugs. And actually, if you look at the current study, um, the experimental study that's being done at the Tavistock, um, virtually 100% of the children who commence on blockers go on to cross sex hormones so there are several problems with that but let me just stick to your original question Is the truth is nobody knows what effect puberty blockers have if they're given for three or four years there is research going on on sheep's brains and there is a worry about cognitive interference so there is a question mark over that there is definitely a question mark over bone density and the risks of osteoporosis. Um, And also if you read the literature, I mean the the literature that they give to the patients, they give them a list of side effects. Well, you know, you don't know, You, you have a side effect. You don't necessarily always recover from a side effect. We don't know. And this is the real contentious issue that so many of us have the, the research in this area. This medical treatment has been unrolled as if it's, you know, it's just sort of it's a go-to route. Yeah. The research outcomes are so poor, and actually, when you ask the clinic, the Jids staff, they frequently say, "Oh, well, we don't really know yet." <laughs> and then, when you ask to look at their research outcomes, they're incomplete or they can't produce them. All patients are lost to the system, and That's the horror of this is because we just don't know what is going to happen to these children in the future. There is no really solid research as yet that says this is a reversible, fully reversible, non-harmful treatment. And the other thing, the point that I made earlier as well, you see, is as soon as you interfere with a child's adolescence, so much goes on. I don't know if you remember what it was like to be a teenager, but you know the difference between one minute you're kind of eight and nine and feeling quite happy with life and playing in the back garden and make-believe and riding horses around um, you know, with a string between your teeth. and and then something goes on in adolescence, and it's a tough ride and your body changes and your feelings. Go up, they go down, you know, but you are working out who you are, you are beginning to take possession of an adult body, you know, it's developing in a way that's going to help you separate from your parents. And you know, that's why I'm so um uh keen to point out that it's not just about the sort of chemical medical intervention. It's about the whole person. And if you interfere with a child's adolescence, I don't think you can ever say that that effect is irreversible. Because
0: all their peers are obviously going through puberty. And so even that, they become an oddity because when everybody else is, I don't know, whether it's spots or fancying someone or all of those things that we associate with, Making your biggest worst mistakes when you're a teenager is a very good thing um, because you, ha- you have no, there's no real adult consequence to a teenage mistake, you know, within reason. Um, so even that is just changes.
1: It That does. And the other thing to say is when, when I'm sort of saying about the paucity of the research, some of the only decent research studies have actually been done in the other area people like henzucker for example, in Canada, who, who you know, worked in this area for years and his sort of so-called watchful waiting. But the idea that you support children, you give them the psychological and their families, the psychological help that they need throughout these difficult years. You help them develop as a person to accept themselves, to feel that they're OK as they are overwhelmingly you know 80 to 95 percent of these children will just learn to be happy and live in their own physical body without alterations chemical or surgical and i just think isn't that so much the better thing to do in the first instance yeah Uh, and then you know later on as people develop you know if that's what they really really want to do in adult life and i'm talking adult life i think mid 20s to be honest i think you still need a good amount of psychotherapy and i know again that's an unpopular um you know uh, thing to say they sort of say why should we have to jump through hoops why should we have to be humiliated but i think if you are going to change gender and live in another role there will be so many difficult aspects to that so many losses you know you you're seeing the horizon and thinking it's all good but there will also be all sorts of things to come to terms with and isn't it important to psychologically prepare for a difficult road ahead so um, you know i really would like to see these treatments kind of held off certainly until people are in their sort of late 20s to be Mm. honest that would be a hugely unpopular thing to say though
0: (laughs) Yeah, who knew, saying just, can we just make absolutely sure. Um, There's a a local child who presents as the opposite sex. And I sometimes see the child. And I just think, I can't imagine being a 12-year-old, wondering if somebody is going to talk about me being the opposite, whatever the opposite sex is. So if if we say this person is really a boy and they dress as a girl, the stress I would imagine every day that someone doesn't tell that child that they are a boy, whether it's friends in the playground, whether it's a teacher, whether it's an inadvertent slip by a parent, or whether it's just the way that someone looks at you when you walk past that you know that they know, I can't imagine the stress levels Uh, of what that child goes through and from a psychological sort of impact what do you think that does to somebody that sort of fear of being found out consistently. constantly
1: Mm. that is a really good question and I'm going to plug here so my husband and I are writing book. we haven't got a, a full name for it yet but we're writing a book really addressing the sort of clinical understanding of it because of course It is a bit of a mystery. No one really knows. There are no such things really as experts. There are a few people who've done a lot of work in the area, but we still don't know all of it. We don't really understand it. The truth is, what we do know is, you cannot see gender dysphoria under a slide. They cannot find anything in the genes as yet. You know, So it seems as though this comes from the mind. And so what I would say is that, there is a reason why it develops out of the mind, and the child is trying to manage something. It's like a kind of defense, in the same way that hand washing is a defense about sort of a contamination of something getting into your mind or starving yourself. Is you know, in anorexia, is a way of stopping some sort of psychological experiences getting into you,
0: mm.
1: it's sort of like keeping everything out. Um, and i think this is a similar thing and i think that you know that that the reason there is such an attack particularly on women but i think on all of us who make mistakes if we mispronoun or if we dead name or you know that the kind of things that are really so attacked and that's what it feels like if you make the tiniest slip in your language it gets attacked and i think that tells you you're right your hunch is right that I think at some level, they also know they're not living. I mean, this idea about the authentic self. I'm okay if someone wants to dress in the opposite gender, but I think it. they know as well. At some level in their mind, there is a part of their mind that they may have pushed right out that knows, you know, if they're a boy, they're a boy, they're a man, they're a man, they're a girl, girl. Yeah, yeah. And so you're so you're right. And I think that that's why they do become so furious and so attacking of us if we make a mistake, because um, it it kind of gets through the reality of who they are, in a sense. And that's the thing that they're defending against. And I, I, I really genuinely feel a kind of sympathy for that. I understand that when someone's distressed or disturbed you kind of manage something in a certain way and so anything that pierces that defense is hard to deal with yeah so you're yeah it's
0: it's quite they're quite I think it's quite fragile um because like you say there's an element of untruth to it um so you mentioned your husband who used to be the governor at the Tavistock is that right
1: well, yeah, he worked um, a long time at the Tavistock. He was a clinical director in the adult department. He's a psychoanalyst. But actually, he had just retired and became embroiled in this because he stood as governor. And it was all around the time that uh, Dr. David Bell had been approached yeah. in his role as staff governor by some of the staff who were leaving the service um, who were really concerned about the rapidity with which children were being sent for hormone treatments right that's how marcus became involved but then of course he tried to work with the, the, the the board at the tavistock but he felt that they just really wouldn't take the clinical concerns seriously and that was why he resigned and so then of course this whole thing took off again for us in our lives
0: and what, by what, uh, whole thing, what is it that you're doing at the moment, uh, Sue Evans?
1: <laughs> so we met last year, um, didn't we, at the House of Lords. So, so people who'd got some experience of sort of being involved in this area and having concerns really from various directions about what was sort of rapidly changing um, its social, cultural, uh, political arenas. Um, uh, but my area, obviously, has always been that I had this sort of worrying experience uh, with the children. In the, yeah. in the- so um, around that time when we attended that, we, we came into contact with a mixture of concerned parents, concerned doctors, um, ex-clinicians from the Tavistock who'd left a lot more recently, you and I met. and um, And also in attendance, there was Harry Miller and his solicitor. Paul Conrath. Yes. And it was kind of out of that that then this kind of web of people contacting me or Marcus because they were concerned about their children or clinicians contacting us. And then, of course, I got in touch with Paul Conrath. And so gradually, what came together to make a long story short is that there was a concerned mother who had a child who's on the waiting list to go to the clinic. And she didn't want the child to go to the clinic because her daughter has autism and she felt that she might very quickly be put on hormone blockers. Right,
0: okay. um,
1: so, so we decided to take a case to challenge the idea that young children can give what is called an informed consent to medications and a sort of treatment pathway, which really concerns their adult life. Um, and of course, the, the uh, trans lobbyists or you know, mermaids, I know on their website recently said, how dare you to sort of challenge the idea that children aren't competent to make a decision about their life. And I always kind of use this story, it's sort of simple analogy, you know, if they have a skin rash or if they have a cancer and you go, look, we've got this really good treatment, there are some risks, but you know, can we go, right. It will cure the rash on your arm. I think a child can understand. I put this on, it might sting a bit, but it will cure my rash. I, I, I can say yes to that. Um, as can kind a of 15 year old girl, I suppose, that's what Gillick competency was about, was you know that, that it's better to have the hormone pill when you're 15 and having sex than to have an unwanted pregnancy. That's how it sort of came about. These children have no concept of an adult life. No, they don't know what um you know sexual satisfaction might be you know very few of them who start on blockers have had an orgasm um and if you talk to them about the idea that they might lose their fertility they don't really care no. they well it's not important you know and and sex is a sort of is is a no-go area as well that that, that really it's you know of course you become more sex obsessed as you get into your mid-teens but you know certainly sort of nine and ten year olds it's like you know I don't really want to know too much about it disgusting so that's it yuck you know as someone very close to me said a a young boy when he'd been at school and had his sex education someone's going to get hurt it's disgusting (laughs) um but it's a really important thing that this kind of consent cannot be informed because it's an adult life it's something that's not known about yet and that's why we're challenging it so we've we've um been granted a judicial review we've now been joined by kira bell who is a detransitioner. so she is the very person um that i think this case is all about you know people who have very rapidly been treated haven't really been properly assessed Mm. um and she has um talked about the treatments that she's had she's had both hormone treatments and surgical treatments and now realized that it was all a mistake um and that really what she needed was psychological help so what's can we talk about kira well i think kira's out yeah so i think we're now to talk about Kira. Mm-hmm. Of course, I don't want to talk for Kira, but no, you know, I know to ask. So,
0: the, yeah. the mechanics of, of Kira's um, so-called transition. How old was Kira when she first went to the? Did she go to the Tavistock?
1: She she went to the Tavistock, um, and I believe she was just coming up sixteen.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So, so she was uh, not a very young child, but she quite quickly was given blockers and then testosterone. Uh, And then she moved on because obviously she was only at that clinic for some two years, I think. And then she moved on to the clinic and, uh, and had a mastectomy. Um, I think all of the treatments that she had were done by, I think the age of 22. Good gracious.
0: So with testosterone, so puberty blockers, right. Even though, I think we've both, um, we both agree that there isn't enough evidence to say that it's reversible, right? That would be a, we're not saying they're not reversible, we're just saying we, there, there is no evidence that we've ever heard of. But with testosterone, we know that that has some pretty massive implications, even if it was, even if it was just facial, facial hair and the voice change. So at what age does the NHS prescribe testosterone to girls?
1: Do you know? As I understand it, I think they are giving them at 16 now, cross-sex hormones. And gillic competence is 15, is it? I think it's under 16, yes. Okay. So, so, so uh, um, and certainly between 16 and 18, I think they, it, that's, um, you know, it's possible for them to consent to the treatment. Particularly this case is challenging, it's under 18s because we're we're arguing that you know 18 year olds are not allowed uh to have tattoos i don't think right No, have uh body modifications of a permanent nature i think you are allowed to pierce your ears with your parents but but certainly you know you can't drink alcohol um and uh there's a way in which we view people as adults over 18 um they're still very young often and immature mm. at that age but mm. that sort of adult responsibility but but we're aiming to argue that this is a decision that cannot be taken at all under the age of 18
0: right right well i totally agree with you i personally i don't think you should be able to take any of these decisions uh, like you said before until you're in your Mid twenties. I certainly know I was a very different human being in my mid-20s than I was at 18.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. there's a reason for that as well, because the, the brain, the cortex, it sort of, it does its last bit of development in mm. your mid-20s. Yeah. And that's why often, you know, our children, <laughs> who have been quite challenging, um, kind of become quite nice people as they sort of develop. <laughs> to their sort of later 20s and we suddenly realise that we've got quite a good relationship with them. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it's because the brain is doing the last of the development. And a really important thing to say, of course, is that hormones, your adolescent hormones, have a massive effect on how your brain develops—absolutely huge—and I know that you're going to talk to um, one of the endocrinologists uh, from the states, but he'll be able to tell you more about that. But but mm. what I have learned is that it's crucial for for the full development of the brain to occur. So so again, it's one of the things we just don't know um, what effects that's going to have on the people who do transition in their later life. Mm. You know, there will be more cognitive impairment. We certainly know there's far more medical um, effects in terms of stroke and heart condition, affecting kidney function and so on.
0: I mean, have we looked at the behavior? So I have three teenagers, and one very just about to be a teenager, I can feel it. Um, And I will say both for my boys and girls, they change significantly. Maybe it's for the better, maybe not, but they definitely changed significantly. Their behavior was yeah. different. Mood swings, all those things, um, especially females. I, I've I've yet to meet a female teenager who didn't do proper PMT cycle mood swings. So we know that about these hormones. What happens to the children that have taken puberty blockers? Do they Do they not still have... Do they have any adolescent hormones like that? Do they or do they stay age 11 or 12?
1: So this refers to my point that I was making about this sort of idea of reversibility. You see, I think it's an essential part of our development
0: Mm. to
1: go through adolescence that 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 all the things that get played out in adolescence are about ultimately hopefully developing into adults who can accept reality who can take responsibility and and you see, what gets described by Dr. Carmichael in that BBC programme, I've, I've seen that as well, is she sort of describes it as a sort of pause, I think, for thinking. I don't want to misquote, but I've, that's what they talk about in their literature as well. That It's a sort of a period of time for thinking. The problem is, if, if someone at 10 starts blockers, their kind of thinking isn't going to follow the kind of thinking that your teenager is about to do. Mm. <laughs> Does that make sense? So, yeah. so they're not going to do all that developmental work of you know can i take responsibility for myself can i separate from my parents will i be a sexual partner for someone will i be attractive can i achieve in the adult world and then the you know the sort of i thought harry enfield was brilliant i don't know if you've got a universal audience but he's a a uk comedian but he used to sort of take off an adolescent he's a grown man but he used to pretend to be an adolescent teenager Yes, and, and throw fits, you see, and, and it's just, like all useless. And uh, But that's kind of what the world's like. And you tell your parents you're completely grown up, and then you fall apart and you run back to your mum and dad and go, oh, God, I've had a terrible time. But it's that's the work of development, you see, and that's why I think this idea that it's a pause for thought, it's not. I think it's almost like a pause that's a bit vacuum-like because nothing changes. And so if you go in, I think it's no coincidence that any of the people in that uh, research project at the Tavistock have gone into it, and a few years later, on they go, because they're not really doing the same level of work. Whereas Kenzooker proved that if you wait, if you support children, if their hormones take a hold, that they become who they're going to be. They may be heterosexual, homosexual, a bit of both. Who who cares, you know, but they kind of develop psychologically yeah. as well. And so that's the really key thing about that blocking, as well as all the sort of ghastly things that it does to the development of the genitals, you know, and these mm. poor men who change their minds, but want surgery, um, you know, either get left with a tiny penis, or they haven't got enough of a penis to make um, a pseudo vagina. So um, it's it's a problem. It can't be very comfortable to live in a body that's
0: sort of the size of a 16 year old, uh, albeit sexless uh, with a micro penis. I mean, mm. all of those things are quite insane that, that what well, that must do to you, that your body then isn't like anybody else's.
1: It, it, it's so damaging. And, and it, it, the the mind and the body I think go so together in this because then you know the damage that you've done to yourself it's kind of like there to see and yeah people who decide to detransition have to do a huge amount of psychological work and I think they're furious that adults and professionals didn't find a way to stop them and I understand that i think you know we've kind of all fallen in with it well not all of us but a lot of people the medical world has fallen in with it at the moment um but also they're they're feeling ashamed or angry with themselves um often because they've kind of gone along with something and then they see their mistake and it's really hard it's hard for any of us to own up you know to mistakes and and to errors in our lives and and they get faced with that often every day you know a young woman who's sort of regularly growing a beard and has decided she is a female after all yeah but you know is left with heavy growth and a deep voice or a boy and I was contacted by someone who said you know they've got the penis of a 10 year old um and they're a young adult male now um so so you know to to kind of say these things are fully irreversible i think is one of the worst lies that's propagated at the moment and it's not to say that we've actually got the hard proof in terms of the chemicals and the research outcome but you are beginning to see the damages in in the emotional lives and the physical mm. lives of some of these people who are regretting what they've done
0: um, you mentioned before Uh, that about 90 to 100 children used to attend uh, the Tavistock in a year. Do we know really what happened to those children? Like, did they go on to transition?
1: So the first thing to say is follow-up statistics from the clinic are not good at all. I think a lot of the research that Mermaids and Stonewall and Jerez will quote is based on the people who do answer the surveys or who do come back and say i'm happy i think there are patients all over the place and no one really knows where they've gone or what they're up to whether they're even alive or dead so that i think the follow up stats are not good so i don't really know the answer to what happened to the patients that were there then Um, What I do know is that during the time I was there and treating some of the young people I mean we had a bit more of a luxury of time and I was able to work psychologically with patients and as Ken Zucker found in his uh, many years of work that if you work over a period of time supporting a distressed person um, and helping them learn about what's going on and why they feel so bad my experience was that actually they can then ultimately feel, oh, actually, it's okay. And I can remember without giving very much information away, you know, that I had a patient who came uh, at the age of 14 and over a period of the next sort of 18 months or so, um, having gone from absolutely wanting to be a boy and determined to get uh, hormones and, and to transgender, kind of... Uh, during that time gradually learned about her earlier life about some of the difficulties she'd had and eventually came to the conclusion that she was a lesbian and that's why she liked girls and then we worked for a while on on that and I think that that's around quite a lot and one other interesting thing is that I did hear an interview an older interview um, or read an interview from Domenico De Cellier, who used to be and was the sort of founder at that clinic the the psychiatrist used to be there and back then not as many children who started on blockers went on to cross-sex hormones because they could only start at 16 so I think again it tells you something about both I think the time factor I think we had less pressure on us as clinicians and perhaps there were more people in the service at that time who were working psychotherapeutically Mm. but the other thing is that delay you know the blockers were not given in very early adolescence they were kind of given to 16 year olds who kind of had already had some of their adolescent Mm. growth and development so I think that's a really important thing and I think that that should sort of be revived and looked at again because there's a difference between then and as I said earlier, the the experiment now, the research now, is that uh, virtually 100% go on to the cross-sex hormones. So So, frightening,
0: so frightening. You know what's going on. How does it impact you personally? Because you know these kids. I mean, you don't know the specific individuals that are going through the service. But you know those children, you've listened to them, their stories and how they feel about themselves and and you know that you've helped them. How does it make you feel now that what we're doing is kind of factory, like a factory line of just churning out supposed trans children?
1: I have such a huge range of emotions. If I'm honest, and the reason I took this case, I mean, some of my friends said, why on earth did you? Do that because it's dominated my life for the past year or so, and it's taken a huge amount of time and energy. And I get, you know, a bit of hatred (laughs) as a result of it, um, which is not easy to take. But always the thing that motivates me is I absolutely want to try to be part of a movement that helps stop what I see as a tragedy unfolding in front of us. I at times get panicky. I just think, why won't anyone listen? Why can't we just stop it right now? No. I I wouldn't have wanted to take the NHS to court. I've worked in the NHS all my life and loved being part of the NHS, as has my husband. Um, but they wouldn't listen and they won't stop. They won't look more closely and make sure that the evidence base is sound. They just seem to be... Persisting with something the world over as well. so I get really panicky at times when I read on you know on Twitter or in the press about something that's happening in Spain or America or Canada. I feel panicked by how powerful this movement has become, mm-hmm. and how many of our young people are being seriously affected by it. Um, you know, young people get affected by all sorts of things, but this is the most damaging one certainly in my lifetime that I know about.
0: Well, it's like you say, isn't it? That they, they participate in their own destruction. And when they come to the end of it and they realize that they've participated in what they now find so distressing, I, I would imagine that's, like a, that's a huge trauma as you've discussed. What do you think is going on for clinicians who are affirming? Because I'm assuming most people go into your field of, or what was your field of work, to help people to understand, especially when you go in sort of care with children, to really help them. Do you think those clinicians really do believe in the affirmation model, or do you think it's saving their jobs or something else, or a combination of everything?
1: Yeah i think the latter the combination of everything probably what i'd add on to that is i think certainly i know even back in sort of 2005 2006 i regularly came home from working when i'd worked the day in the gyms um, with a kind of pounding headache because i remember even back then trying to advocate for us to take a bit more time, trying to kind of find ways to use words that wouldn't offend trans people, trying to be careful about the politics of it, trying to be inclusive. You know, I think it's like walking in minefields when you work in the area. And I think now, I mean, it's so much more politicized. I think absolutely the political tail is wagging the clinical dog if that makes sense yeah yeah um so so I, I i think that some clinicians just feel that they have to go along with it because they get threatened with litigation um, patients themselves can be quite terrifying and they're not an easy client group to work with i think you need, you need quite a lot of experience to work with the group of young people and their families you know Mm. because there's so much high emotion around it's it's hard work and and i think sometimes people it's just easier to capitulate or to just agree um because that seems to be what mermaids say we should do and stonewall say we should do and w path say we should do you know it's kind of That's the wisdom at the moment that's prevailing. And then I think I know teachers who absolutely will say to me privately, this education package is a load of nonsense. It's, you know, talking about 100 genders or it's got pictures Mm -hmm. of a rainbow and saying, oh, if you like black, you're a boy. And if you like pink, you're a girl. They're saying it's nonsense, but we've been told we've got to deliver it. It's been sponsored. you know by the Equalities um, Commission and so so I think that you know I'm sort of really just elaborating on what you said which is there are multiple reasons and the one other I'd add which is I also think um When I was a general nurse, one of the things that nurses used to say behind doctors' backs is, oh, he thinks he's God. You know, the surgeons used to walk on the, they're much better these days, most of them, I have to say. But, you know, you used to kind of get that kind of, and and I think that some doctors are creating their masterpieces, you know, in the same way that some plastic surgeons will give a patient more and more and more. Mm. And at no stage say, do you really need another breast enlargement or, you know, higher cheekbones or whatever it is they're doing. They just keep going and creating their works of art. And I do think that for some doctors, there's a kind of, um, that'll be a very contentious thing to say and doctors might be shouting out. Very, very few. I'm only saying a few of them that have got very heavily involved in this. And then I think they just can't back out. I think some of them might even begin to doubt, but I think they can't back out. Well, I've
0: seen, I think this weekend or maybe a few days ago, I saw a picture of a shirtless older doctor with two girls that he'd removed the breasts of, also shirtless, in this kind of happy photo
1: which I just find
0: absolutely staggering.
1: Is that the doctor that calls his patients his babies? Because oh, I don't know, but I think... I think it might be the same one. I think he... Or, or there's another one I know of that does um, mastectomies on um, young adolescent girls and calls them my babies, um, which is fairly horrendous.
0: Yeah, there's, I've seen and also seen a picture of someone holding up like a, a bucket that says breasts on it breast tissue um out of a,
1: it's it, gross. it's it, it's it's horrifying. And I think the other thing is you and I know because we've now been kind of looking really closely at this area, um it's so ghastly that I think a lot of people don't even want to know. So when I became involved in this what struck me was some of my friends said, what, what are you doing? And I said, do you know what's going on with young people in school and uh, and in medicine at the moment no and it's it's kind of filtering through a bit now yeah but i think even just a year ago this was going on these amputations these mastectomies um and this sort of hormone treatment has been sort of proceeding marching on mm. uh, throughout the world and i think joe public weren't very aware of it no I'm glad it's sort of coming in a bit more, but even then it's really hard to look. Some people don't want to look at what's really going on. But also I think with with things like
0: phalloplasty um, and breast binding and all that sort of stuff, I think people think it's so awful. It must be a solution to something even more terrible. Uh, Because why would we do that to young people unless we absolutely had to? And I think again, it goes back to what you mentioned with the trust in doctors. Like they, well, they wouldn't do that unless it was absolutely necessary.
1: So, the other thing is, I think when you have a psychic pain or a distress or a sort of difficulty that, that feels too unmanageable, you kind of want to put it out of your brain. But one of the ways of managing it is to always look for the next thing so so I think and that's something I have heard from from a few detransitioners actually online you you kind of see them talking about it and what they say is so then I thought that bit would do it I thought you know I thought the T would do it the testosterone you know I thought the binder would do it I thought the chest surgery would do it I thought and 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 I think that's often the way they go because they they kind of feel better for a while and then that effect wears off and then they do something else. Now, for some people, thankfully, they do something and then maybe they think, OK, I'm all right like this. And I'm completely OK with people if they like I say, if they want to appear a certain way, um, I don't mind what people wear or what they kind of want to look like in, in the world. But mm. I think um, I think there's a way in which it's kind of always looking for the next hit. You know, like if you take heroin, you you have to keep making the doses bigger. And and I think there's something about that. And of course, that I don't know if you've seen, I've I've noticed on Twitter there's a um somebody named Scott Nugent who talks about he had a phalloplasty um, and it's left him with excruciating damage in his arm. Um sort of like nerve damage and the skin is absolutely and he's going to have that for the rest of his life. Um, and he, even though he's a transsexual, so he's a, a female to male, um, but he absolutely says no child should be medicated. You know, no trans child should be medicated. And I think people like that are really helpful yeah. because they demonstrate the horrors of the surgery. And, and everyone who's kind of had it, most people say, although they might be happy with the appearance of their... Um, phalloplasty it, it doesn't really work um in yeah. a way that will give them full satisfaction and so it, it it again it's a reminder of something at some level i think
0: yeah well who knew that we couldn't construct a fully working penis out of the a bit of an arm um <laughs> just the fact that somebody ever thought to do it i think uh speaks of delusions of grandeur uh anyway <laughs>
1: Just to say, I mean, I still, because I think I gave doctors a little bit of a hard time. You see, I, I kind of also understand that if you kind of believe that you can do something to help someone, you know, there is that kind of way in which I think that that is why you asked me that question. I think that's why a lot of people kind of do go along this path with the children is because, I think they can't bear to see the distress and the the pain or, or the confusion and so they kind of do it thinking oh I really hope this helps. It, you yeah. know, I, I don't think they, you know, I don't think most of it is malign but I think there is something malign in it. Yeah. I
0: think you are a very kind and compassionate woman <laughs> far far <laughs> superior to my level of what I think of people who make a living um doing that and obviously in America it's a very different story in America I think the money in medicine um, would corrupt even the most good in all of us I find it very difficult to believe that if you get kickbacks from drug companies uh, to the tune of millions of dollars that you can also remain completely uncorruptible I think it's just it's for human beings that's an impossibility but over in this country I, I thank the Lord, that we do have the NHS and and nice guidelines. I just understand they don't really have many decent ones for this specific um, area.
1: Well, I'm hoping, we've got the Hilary Cass inquiry, and I'm hoping that there is a good balance in that committee. I mean, I haven't seen who's on it as yet. I'm waiting to hear. But I really hope that they start to look at the evidence base. And what I know is that the evidence base for this rapid unfolding is not good enough. So I really hope um, that 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 kind of brings some sense to this. And then I'm hoping that we win our judicial review.
0: So do I, Um, when is that?
1: So, well, unfortunately it's been because of the COVID crisis. It has been postponed. So um, we think it's going to be in the autumn, but obviously everything is a bit up in the air at the moment. Yeah. Um, And uh, Yeah. But I'm 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 really hoping that that might be a first set. There are so many areas that that this needs tackling. Mm. I'm kind of trying to focus myself on the area that I feel that I know about, which is the treatment with young children and young yeah. adults. Um, so uh, yeah.
0: Well, I think if we change if we change how the NHS views this, I mean my my wish list is that you win your review um, that the safe schools alliance win their review so we stop this stuff in schools guidance uh, that also we then see that if puberty blockers is something the nhs won't do because they have found it not to be helpful and potentially harmful then that will extend to private clinics so then it would become a criminal offense to prescribe these sort of uh drugs outside of the nhs at all um And if you take your child away, then it's going to be the same as female genital mutilation because it is sort of genital mutilation, if not uh, with a knife. Um, But that's my wish list for this stuff. So that there's not another child that enters adulthood without a fully functioning adult body.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And just to go back to something that, um, you you said earlier about what what would i advise parents and children to do and i think at the moment it's a tricky situation as i said one of the things i know you know people have said to me but if you take this treatment away what are parents going to do and it's true you don't want to sort of just absolutely cut something off and what I'm really trying to also advocate for is that we could have a kind of re-education program of professionals both in in health services in children and and adolescent mental health services Mm. and a bit more funding Mm. so that these children could get much better psychological support and treatment and and their families not with the affirmative model as it is but you know with a supportive structure where children can explore who they are safely and families can be supported Um, in that and professionals can feel that they can get to know patients and and not have to collude which is what i think they feel they have to do at the moment so my other aim after the judicial review is to try and get a a better education program out there um, for clinical care um, and for psychological support Um, yeah really important we can't just stop something without offering a better alternative
0: no and we know how much the NHS loves to fund talking therapies it's
1: (laughs) not an easy time is it Covid crisis but I think you know there are people doing this work and if they stopped just affirming thoughtlessly and started to work with the young people um, hopefully that might make things a bit better Um, and then we'll try and twist someone's arm in the government to be
0: well maybe um, go back to the levels of sort of contact that you had with patients back in 2002 you know where they're actually offered help
1: yeah but they but even then it was it was wrong because they used to travel from Newcastle down to London for for a session and you know they need to be treated locally they need to be able to go sort of been in the school lunchtime or just after school with their families, you know, not, not kind of go to a specialist centre that actually really doesn't have any answers and still, after all the money they've had for research, still answer most questions with, well, we don't really know. <laughs> like, <laughs> going we don't really know. So maybe.
0: Well, good luck with your review and thank you very much for talking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. As always, thanks for listening. Please don't forget to like, share and subscribe.